0: Well, good morning, and I want to thank you, Jeff Cranford, for giving me the opportunity to join uh, my friends in California today. I'm speaking from Loxley, Alabama, and it is a joy to be with you. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person. Maybe we can do that sometime. Um, I put on a tie today since I saw Jeff Cranford wearing one, and hope I'm not overdressed for this affair. First Peter, the second chapter. There's a couple of verses that I want to start with. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, in the um, New International Version, says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, some versions say aliens and strangers, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And here's the phrase that I want you to remember. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If I had a title for this message, it would be Living Among the Pagans. And I've noticed that uh, since we moved to Alabama a couple of years ago, uh, it's very common for me to get the question, where do you live? Uh, I thought you were from Kentucky. So, of course, for most of my life, we were from Kentucky, and when the question was, Where do you live? it was, Well, we live in Kentucky, and I might even sing my old Kentucky home. Conversation would um, tend toward basketball. Um, if it was turned toward golf, I might even mention Frank Beard, who I know li- lives in, in your community. Um, now, though, we live in Alabama, so when people say, Where do you live? I say, Well, we live in Loxley, Alabama. Where is that? Halfway between Mobile and Pensacola. Roll Tide has entered into the uh, conversation and um, we're asked, well, why do you live in Alabama? And I mostly say because we're next door neighbors with my wife's sister, has to do with family, getting away from snow, living on a golf course, living on a fishing lake. And then in the summer, um, I like to think that we live in Scotland for two months, every August and September. My wife and I, we try to go to Scotland to get out of the Alabama heat. And instead of being a visit... I like to say that we actually live there because we spend six to eight weeks becoming part of the community. So where do you live? You live in California. I'm in Alabama. But where do you live in your mind is a whole other way of thinking about this. Um, My mind goes places (laughs) that my body uh, has never been sometimes or goes back to places where I have been in the past. Right now, I'm trying to write a book a novel that takes place in the uh, Orkney Islands. I've only been there for two days in my life, but in my mind, I'm living in the Orkney Islands most days. Uh, When we were there for those two days last summer, uh, very interesting, I won't tell the whole story, but we ran into two monks uh, who live on an island in the Orkney Islands, a very small island. There's only 11 or 12 monks that live on a small, small island. There's 70 islands in the north of Scotland. And I got a brief conversation with these two monks, and I said, so what order are you a member of? And uh, Father Edward, I think his name was, says to me, we're sons of the Most Holy Redeemer. I look back at him, and I says, me too. <laughs> he wanted to know if I was Catholic. I said, no, I'm not, but I'm a son of the most holy Redeemer. So in your mind, I'm living in the Orkney Islands. Perhaps in your mind, you're living with your children or your grandchildren who live in another state. Through Zoom meetings and the Internet, we live in other places now. So metaphysically, we live in places where our physical body is not located. Perhaps my favorite book is Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote that book from prison. He was physically in prison, but his mind and his heart and his spirit were someplace else, writing, I think, the greatest book of all time. The Apostle Paul was writing half the New Testament from a prison cell. And so where do you live? Do you live in California? And where do you live in time? Uh, It strikes me that a lot of people live in the past. Sometimes uh, that living in the past means you're living with a lot of regrets and failures and you spend your whole life worried about things you can't control because they're over. Or some people are just the opposite. They live in their glory years. For me, I was a lawyer and it's easy for me to go back and think of all the great cases that we won. I was in politics for a while and it's easy to go back and think about the state senate where I served. I was a judge for a while so it's easy to go back and live in the past of all the cases I had in court. And uh, even as a golfer, you know, my, 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 I have some glory years or I should say some glory moments when I won a couple of small little tournaments and those, it's easy to live in the past with all of that. And then some people make the opposite mistake. They live in the future, always planning to do something, but really never getting it done. You know, there's really only yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I read something in a devotional in the last week that was awesome. You know, if you can remember that your past is forgiven, that the present has power, and that the future has hope, you should be a happy person. And that's what I'm trying to do now at age 70. Forget about the past. In some ways, even forget about the future. But I'm hoping for present power so this is all just a prelude to my current dilemma that I really want to talk about. I have two worlds that I live in, and they have collided here at age 70 in July of 2021. Physically, my first of all, my physical world that I live in is very comfortable now. I have to admit I've got it made. Uh, I'm retired I finally made it. I have a pension. The state of Kentucky sends me a check every month. The federal government sends me Social Security every month. This money just shows up. I'm retired living on a golf course, living on a fishing lake here in Alabama that's just absolutely awesome. And so physically, I live in this world of country club golfers and others who seem to have it made. And once in a while, this world that I'm living in clashes because metaphysically, in my mind, I'm living in other places, one of which for me is India. I've been to India perhaps 20 times. I'm chairman of an organization that tries to provide help and relief for people in India. And so in many ways, I am more distressed than ever. I'm living in comfort. My dreams have come true living on the golf course, play golf anytime I want to, go to Scotland in the summer, and yet I'm in absolute total distress almost every day. So much so that I've stopped watching the news. I haven't seen Joe Biden say one word since the election. I haven't seen Donald Trump say one word since the election. I've turned off the television because I can't take it anymore. And so the only news I really get are from my friends in India, and it's all bad coronavirus is ravaging india our partners there are suffering i wake up every morning thinking i want to go to india and help somebody but i can't get on a plane and get there well so i've got these two worlds i'm living in (laughs) one physically and another in my mind and these worlds collide sometimes i had an incident just three weeks ago where these worlds collided. I was playing in a member guest at a very fancy country club here in South Alabama. And the combination of one conversation I had there with another conversation I had at my club. I've, I've created this person who's kind of, a, if you will, a, a figure of what I'm trying to talk about. I'm going to name this guy Randy. I ran into Randy. I'm going to play a golf match with him that morning. Nine o'clock in the morning was our tea time, and he was already working on his second Bloody Mary. He was trying to kill the headache and the hangover from the night before. And as we began to play golf, he started to tell me a story about one of his friends who had lost over $100,000 at a casino in Mississippi. And the essence of the conversation was, man, how, how great this guy is. How awesome he is that he's got so much money. He sold his business at age 41. And he's got so much money, he could lose $100,000 at the crap tables. Craps, whatever you call it. <laughs> he could lose $100,000 at the casino and never even miss it. Boy, wouldn't that be great? I just kind of looked at him. Within five minutes of that conversation, my I was keeping my text, my phone on a little bit on silent, even though we were playing golf, because I knew that, I was expecting perhaps a message from India. I got the message. It was bad news. It was urgent. Our dear friend there named Joel, also age 41, by the way, who spends 24-7 night and day helping orphans and widows and poor people and spreading the gospel of Christ. We knew that he had coronavirus. We knew he was in the hospital. We knew it was not good, but I was being urged in this text message to join in an all-night, 24-hour prayer meeting. It was the middle of the night in India. Please, Tim, would you join us by Zoom over the next couple of days and pray not just for all of India, but for our friend, Joel. And so here I was, kind of trapped between my two little worlds. The first world that I'm living in here, meeting the third world. And so... To finish the casino story, I went back to the guy at some point and I just said, man, it's, I'm kind of sorry about your friend that he's lost all that money, especially, and I actually read the text message to this guy. I've got some friends in India that need help so bad, it's a shame that he isn't getting the pleasure and the joy of giving to people in need, left my friend speechless Later, he told me a little story that, trying to make himself feel better, I guess, that tell me how he helps somebody play Little League Baseball or he does something charitable along the way. But what I've discovered is I'm kind of the man in the middle. I'm the man in the middle between my physical world of (laughs) rich guy golfers, if you will, and the world I know about so well, my friends, in india those worlds collided a few years ago kind of a funny story i had a friend named billy Uh, billy was the wealthiest guy at my home club back in kentucky i'd been working on billy for many years Um, he was um, i'm sure by any definition he was a pagan back to our original verse live among the pagans God has given some of us the opportunity to live among the pagans. Well, one of those pagans was Billy. I started inviting him to golf retreats and other kind of things. I never even thought about inviting him to church, by the way. That would have been way too much. But sure enough, he came on one of our golf retreats to Pinehurst, perhaps 20 years ago. And long story short, he had his own jet. He flew to work every morning in a helicopter just to prove that he had one, I think. He was a member at Oak Hill in Rochester, New York, during the summer, every Tuesday, he would get on his jet and fly to Rochester just to play golf. And at some point, I made the traveling squad, so I got to go to Oak Hill three or four times with my friend Billy. In 2008, we went to the Walker Cup in Ireland. When we got back within a couple of weeks, Billy called me and said, Tim, uh, I just got some bad news. Uh, It looks like I may have lung cancer. I said, Really? He says, I'll, get more, I'll have more news tomorrow. I'm going to Houston. They're going to give me the full diagnosis. And he called me back. He says, I got the full diagnosis. It's, I've got the worst kind you can have. There's, they're not giving me much time to live. Life got serious for Billy. I had been doing a Bible study with him at the golf club, and we were studying the book of John. And when we got to John 3, it was awesome because at some point, he had just kind of looked at me, and he finally had figured out that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, (laughs) not saints, 1 Timothy 1, 15, I think it is. And he began to realize that salvation was possible for him, even though most of his life had been pretty sinful. And so, in his own way, he had come to the Lord, and this cancer had um, really knocked him for a loop, though. He was going to Houston often for cancer treatment, and about the time he was finishing up his treatment, my friend from India, whose name is Guna Kumar. Guna's about my age. Guna has over 300 guys that work with him, mostly on bicycles, going village to village, preaching the gospel. I met him 30-some years ago. We've been friends, and partners if you will ever since guna happened to be in lexington and guna loves to pray for the sick i called billy simpson my rich friend uh, who lives in the biggest mansion at the country club i said billy i got a friend from india named guna he loves to pray for sick people could we come to your house i was actually scared to death to make the phone call billy says yeah come on guna and i showed up my wife was with us we got to his mansion His wife, who was a former Miss Kentucky, was there. Even though Billy was in his late 50s, he had his first, uh, he had a little girl who I think was eight years old at the time. His wife and little girl came out, and Guna Kumar prayed for this guy. I I told Billy it would only take 15 minutes, but we were there for over an hour. Uh, Guna had Billy, the rich man, uh, get down on his knees with his Bible opened up, and basically to just preached a sermon to him. I forget what it was, something about healing. And the funniest thing almost ever happened, as we were leaving, Billy came over, and only, only Billy would even think this thought. He whispered in my ear, Hey, Tim, do I owe this guy anything? <laughs> I said, No, Billy, you don't owe him anything. He's going to keep praying for you. A month later, Billy called me and says, Tim, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. He says, well, you're not going to believe this, but uh, the doctors are kind of shocked, but they can't find any cancer in my body. I go, oh, wow, Billy, awesome. And so we lived in the glory of that for several months. But sad to say, Billy's health deteriorated again. The cancer came back a few months later. And in... I think it was 2009, we buried Billy. I gave a short testimony at his funeral. I was wearing his golf shoes to do it. But how we know for certain that Billy Simpson is in heaven. And so the connection of these two worlds, it seems like that's kind of my my job, if you will, in these days, is to connect the two worlds. Because the truth is, the guy that I met at the golf course recently with the Bloody Mary is more lost in his riches and his friend at the casino is more lost in his riches than the poorest of the poor will ever be in India in their poverty. Revelation 3, 17 is a verse that has gotten my attention here lately as I began to think on these things. It's the um, last letter, of course, from Jesus himself I love stuff that's in the red letters I love to have a bible that's got red letters in it so I can see when Jesus himself is speaking and the message to the church in Laodicea is really about the church that was lukewarm but in the middle of that letter he says Jesus says to that church you say I am rich I have everything I want or that could be me in many ways if I just thought about my pension and my social security and my house and the golf club. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, my The rich man, lost in his riches, more lost than the poorest of the poor is lost in their poverty. The world is upside down. And by the way, my friend Joel, age 41, died from coronavirus just two or three weeks ago as I'm speaking. And that young man Joel, by the way, his father is Gunu Kumar that prayed for Billy. I've, I've smiled quite often envisioning the reunion <laughs> of my friend Billy Simpson with Guna's son, Joel. And by the way, if you want to pray for somebody, pray for Guna. Guna is grieving the loss of his son. And so what do we do? <laughs> what are we supposed to do about this? Well, I'm going to keep reading here in Revelation 3, and I won't take long, but just to describe what we need to do to finish um, this morning revelation three 18. i'm gonna have to put my glasses on it says this so i advise you to buy gold from me gold that has been purified by fire then you will be rich Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. In fact, one of the other versions says, repent, repent, turn around. I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that's been purified by fire. How do you get out of your poverty? It's almost for sure going to be something to do with the fire, some kind of suffering, some kind of difficulty that God is going to give you as a gift, really, to bring you back to himself. And for your nakedness, clothe yourselves. There's a verse earlier in, of course, the New Testament that says clothe yourself with Jesus Christ himself. Not with the church, necessarily, as good as that is. Not with just trying to be a good person. Not with writing checks (laughs) to send to India. Clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with white garments, it says here. With a white robe to cover your nakedness. And that white garment is Jesus himself. An ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Oh, we need to repent because I think what we do so much. I'm gosh, I'm I'm kind of preaching to myself at this point, but people will say not just where do you live, but they'll say how you doing? Oh. I can tell you how great I'm doing. And we put it in spirituality and you know, we kind of spiritualize the whole thing. Well, we're just so blessed. We just thank the Lord. He's been so good to us. <laughs> you know. I'm um, preaching myself under conviction right now we think the answer to our prayers is to avoid troubles and because we've avoided so many troubles god surely must be good to us but all of that is right before one of the most quoted verses in the bible revelation three twenty. behold or look my version says i stand at the door and knock if you hear my voice and open the door. I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. And those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. You see, that verse has been used in evangelism for a long time. Always, uh, it's one of the, uh, and a good evangelist will use Revelation 3.20 quite often to say that Jesus himself is knocking on the door of your heart and All you have to do is open the door and let him come in. But this verse is actually given to the church. Because even people in the church who believe in their head and oftentimes even believe in their heart, so well-meaning about everything. But in truth, they've closed the door on Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying, look... (laughs) I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. Can I come in? You know, for me, the door is largely the first tee. It's the putting green. It's where I hang out many days. It's in the pro shop. It has something to do with a little Bible study that we do at the golf club every Friday morning. I'm hanging out with people that think they're rich. Don't realize that they are poor, blind, naked, wretched, miserable. God has put me right by the door. I'm going to close this morning. I'm hoping I'm not taking too long. They told me I could speak as long as I want to, but I'm uh, I'm going to try to keep this reasonably short so that somebody will pay attention. I'm going to finish this morning with a, a poem. Uh, you know, I hate doing this because I've always thought, boy, how pitiful it is to have three points in a poem for a sermon. But here we go anyway. This is a poem, if you will, from Sam Shoemaker that I heard many years ago and expresses what I want to try to say to you this morning, that God himself is standing at the door. God is knocking on the door. And my question for you would be, are you at the door? Are, are you at the door trying to get the people that you live with physically? In your they're in, they're in Palm Desert, Palm Springs, La Quinta, wherever it is you are. I'm not sure exactly who I'm speaking to this morning. But you're standing at the door for lots of people that are lost, so lost in their riches. I'm, I know this may have started like I was trying to raise money for India or something, or I'm trying to raise support for the poor in India. That's actually not the purpose of this message at all. The purpose of this message is to help you understand that your mission field is right where you live, full of people that are poor and wretched and blind and naked. And they are waiting for somebody to open the door for them. Just listen. I stand by the door. I neither, I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only a wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch. The latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside the door. As starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him and so I stand by the door now go in great saints go all the way in go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics it's a vast roomy house the house where God is go into the deepest of hidden easements of withdrawal of silence of sainthood Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and the heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes I venture in a little further. But my place seems closer to the opening, so I stand by the door. There's another reason I stand there. Uh, Some people get partway in and become afraid, lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us. And these people feel a cosmic claustrophobia and want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And the people way inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them that they are spoiled. For the old life they have seen too much. One taste of God. And nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just where they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving. Preoccupied with the wonder of it all, somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet been able to find the door or the people who want to run away from God again. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place. Near enough to God to hear him and know he is there. But not so far from men as not to hear them. And remember, they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's close with a prayer. Lord, I don't think it's an accident that the people I share with this morning are at a church called The Church at the Red Door. Awesome thought. The Church at the Red Door. A door that opens to heaven itself. A door that is possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. A blood that is not, a blood that came for our sins and died for our sins. And we are nothing, we are not worthy at all. We are poor, wretched, naked. But the blood of Jesus Christ has made salvation possible for each one of us. And now, Lord, we have friends who are still outside the door. Some of them we'll be playing golf with on Monday morning. Some of these we will see at some kind of a party later this week. Some of them are in our family, just outside the door, looking sometimes for the door, not even knowing that that's what they're looking for. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for that this morning. So, Jesus, we pray that you would now use this message, use the power of your word to transform people, to send them out from this place to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.